0: Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dorothy Doty, as you know, and in this class, we're going to discuss stress urinary incontinence. We're going to briefly review the pathology, etiology, and clinical presentation. We're primarily going to focus, though, on assessment and management. So as you know, stress urinary incontinence is caused by sphincter dysfunction. It's defined as leakage of urine that's associated with activities that cause an increase in abdominal pressure. The bladder is not misbehaving. It is the sphincter that is not doing its job. Some people refer to stress incontinence as activity associated incontinence. I think that's really helpful because it reminds you of when the leakage occurs and kind of reminds you of the underlying pathology. So when people report stress, urinary incontinence, they tell you things like I leak when I go to gym class. I leak when I pick up my baby. I leak when I jog. I leak when I laugh really hard. I might leak if I cough, if I sneeze. Every one of those activities involves the abdominal muscles, involves an increase in abdominal pressure. That increase in abdominal pressure is transmitted to the bladder, and creates. Creates downward push on the bladder and the sphincter. Very important to realize that the bladder is not contracting and the person typically reports no sense of urgency to void. So as we said, whose fault is it? It's the sphincter's fault. It's the sphincter that is not functioning normally. If the sphincter does not function normally, what you end up with is inadequate urethral resistance. So typically people have enough resistance to provide protection at rest. So when they're sitting, they're not leaking. When they're walking around, they're not leaking. But if they're walking around and then suddenly they get choked and they're coughing really hard, then they might leak. So leakage occurs when abdominal pressures rise Abdominal pressures create downward pressure on the bladder, increase pressure within the bladder. If my sphincter and my pelvic floor cannot create a counterbalancing increase in urethral pressure, I will leak, even though my bladder is not contracting. So remember, anytime bladder pressure is higher than urethral pressure, urine will leak out doesn't really matter what causes that increase in bladder pressure. <clears throat> Whether it's a bladder contraction or in this case downward pressure from the abdominal muscles. There are two major causes of stress incontinence. The first is much more common and that is pelvic muscle weakness. Most commonly see we see this in women. We might also see this in men post prostatectomy. So let's just go through this one more time. We keep hearing the same thing and I'm hoping it's starting to lock into place. So at rest, the abdominal muscles are relaxed. There's no downward pressure on the bladder. Nothing's happening. The urethra is closed. Urine is where it should be in the bladder. I cough, I laugh, I sneeze, I jog. Now. I've got increased abdominal pressure that increased abdominal pressure is transmitted to the bladder and creates a downward push on the bladder. If I do not have a strong pelvic floor the bladder and the sphincter drop out of position and remember when the sphincter is out of position it does not work normally It's working from a stressed and stretched position. If my sphincter muscles are also weak, and they are, they're unable to maintain urethral closure and I leak. And that's what you see from the slides. So that's the most common reason for stress incontinence. But remember, you can also get stress incontinence as a result of sphincter damage or denervation. And this can occur in men or women. What causes sphincter damage? What would cause denervation of the sphincter? Well, usually it's extensive pelvic surgery or pelvic trauma. It could be a spinal cord injury that causes denervation of the sphincter. It could be repeated or prolonged instrumentation of the urethra that causes replacement of muscle fibers with scar tissue. The end result is you get a urethra that acts very much like a rigid pipe is unable to contract and close. So even minor activity like standing can force urine through this rigid pipe. Now in a male with post prostatectomy incontinence the leakage is typically due to damage to the sphincter muscle which sits right below the prostate or damage to the nerves that innervate the sphincter which pass right through the prostate but you can also get scarring of the urethra because when they do a radical prostatectomy, they actually take out a section of urethra <clears throat> and then connect the two good ends. If you get scarring at that anastomosis, that can actually create some degree of outlet obstruction and you can get a combination of urinary incontinence and impaired emptying. So let's look at what the patient tells us, what we find on physical and what tests might be done. What do we hear on history? Leakage associated with activity, no urgency. Most of the time leakage is relatively low volume. Although if you don't have any kind of protective pad, even five milliliters of urine can soak through your underwear. So it might not feel low volume to you. The patient may report multiple or difficult vaginal deliveries. The patient may report being postmenopausal and not being on estrogen replacement. If it's a male, history is likely to include radical prostatectomy. And if you have a patient with severe stress incontinence, history is likely to reveal either pelvic trauma, pelvic surgery, or prolonged use of an indwelling catheter. What do we find on physical exam? When we examine the pelvic floor muscles, either vaginally in a female or anally in a male, we find very weak muscles. So very low contractility, very limited endurance. When we have the patient cough, there's typically immediate leakage with cough. And in the female, we may also see indicators of estrogen deficiency. So we may see that smooth, dry, pale vaginal mucosa. We may see an abnormally prominent urethral meatus. Almost always stress incontinence is diagnosed based on history and physical. Diagnostic tests are not typically performed. But if you were going to do some diagnostic tests, you could do uh, what they call a pad leak test. It's a really simple test. So you take a dry pad, most of the time we weigh the pad, we put it in the patient's underwear, then we have the patient stand, cough, laugh, maybe go upstairs, maybe jog in place and then we reweigh the pad to quantify the amount of leakage that occurred during activity. So now we have verified that leakage occurs with activity and we have quantified the severity of the leakage. If we do urodynamic studies and we suspect stress incontinence, we would want to include a urethral pressure profile and typically we find very low urethral pressures. We might also do an abdominal leak point study and again we would find that there is very little pressure required to initiate leakage. So not much required to override the sphincter. So what about management? Stress incontinence is a very common type of incontinence even if you're not working in a continence center, you're gonna have family members who have stress incontinence, you're gonna have friends who have stress incontinence. If you're female, you may have stress incontinence. So you really wanna know how to prevent, how to manage. So when you look at the data and the research that's been done on stress incontinence, they have found that if a woman is obese, She has increased risk of stress incontinence, and if she loses weight, that reduces the pressure on the pelvic floor and typically reduces the number of incontinent episodes. So if your patient is overweight, it's helpful to do counseling about weight loss. Even though we don't understand the mechanism of action, caffeine has also been shown in some individuals to increase the incidence of leakage episodes. So if your patient is drinking coffee, drinking um, caffeinated colas, you might counsel her to do a one to two week trial just to see does cutting back on coffee reduce the number of incontinence episodes? If so, she might want to look at incorporating that long term. If it makes no difference, if it does no good, she can go back to her coffee. You can tell I'm a coffee addict, so I'm very sympathetic to others who are as well. The primary intervention for weak pelvic floor muscles is pelvic muscle re-education. So pelvic muscle exercises with or without biofeedback. This is the same strategy we use to strengthen any weak muscle. So if you have weak quads, we prescribe exercise. You have weak abdominals, we prescribe exercise. You have weak pelvic floor, exercise is what's going to bring those muscles back to normal function. So Pelvic muscle exercises are most effective for patients with mild to moderate stress incontinence due either to pelvic floor weakness and that urethral hypermobility in women or to post prostatectomy incontinence in men. Pelvic muscle exercises require intact nerve pathways. So those muscles have to be innervated. The patient has to be able to voluntarily contract those muscles. The patient has to be cognitively intact and motivated enough to adhere to an exercise program. So go back to when we talked about assessment of the individual with urinary incontinence. And we talked about the importance of assessing pelvic muscle function and assessing the patient's ability to voluntarily contract the right group of muscles. That's what we're talking about here. If I'm going to put you on an exercise program, your muscles have to work. They can be weak, but they have to be functional. They have to be innervated. You have to understand the program. You have to be motivated because this is not going to happen overnight. Third bullet point, pelvic floor muscle exercises do improve function, but they do not correct any anatomic defects. So what if I have a patient with a very weak pelvic floor, but she also has significant pelvic organ prolapse and maybe a cystocele. Exercises might help and studies have shown that if you put a patient on a pelvic muscle exercise program, It can actually help to reduce the severity of prolapse, but obviously exercise won't correct an anatomic defect. So if this prolapse is very problematic for the patient, in addition to teaching her pelvic muscle exercises, you probably want to refer her for surgical evaluation. Some women, some men, prefer to do pelvic muscle exercises with biofeedback so that they get immediate feedback as to whether or not they're correct contracting the right muscle, how long they're holding the contraction, we'll come back to that. So how do pelvic muscle exercises work? They work the same way any exercise program works. If you repetitively contract a striated muscle you're going to strengthen that muscle. You're going to bulk it up. You're going to improve its contractility. You're going to improve its endurance. That's what we want to do. You're also teaching the patient how to use muscles to reduce the risk of leakage. So once I get you using those muscles in an exercise program, I can also teach you anytime you're about to sneeze, squeeze. You're about to cough, contract. Use those muscles to help prevent leakage. Now, it's important to realize that when you contract the pelvic floor muscles, there's a feedback loop to the bladder. So pelvic floor muscle contraction also inhibits bladder contractility. So when we talk about overactive bladder and urge incontinence, we'll talk about pelvic muscle exercises again. They help with stress incontinence, they help with urge incontinence. So here's your indications, mild to moderate stress incontinence, overactive bladder urge incontinence, or mixed stress and urge. And those are the three most common types of incontinence. So the vast majority of our patients are going to benefit from a pelvic muscle exercise program. So let's talk about how to teach pelvic muscle exercises. And you know in a lot of centers they just hand a patient a sheet of paper, but I've heard many patients say, oh yeah, you know what? I did those exercises. I did those Kegels. They didn't help. But then when you evaluate that patient's ability to contract the right muscles, they're not doing them correctly. So many times people think they're doing Kegel exercises, but in reality, they're contracting their abdominal muscles, their gluteals or their quadriceps which means they have a flat belly, nice buns, trimmed thighs, and wet pants because they're not contracting the right pelvic muscle group. So you've got to be sure that they really do know how to do the exercises correctly. We talked about this in our class on physical assessment, but let's go back through one more time. How do you teach a woman to do pelvic muscle exercises? ideally you use one or two fingers as biofeedback so you put one or two glove fingers into the vagina you can put your other hand on her abdominal wall and then you cue her to tighten and lift focus on tighten and lift pulling my fingers in not passing gas cutting off your urinary stream If she does the contraction incorrectly, so let's say you can feel her contracting around your fingers, but she's really bearing down. She's not pulling in, she's pushing. Then you wanna stop her and you wanna say, you're trying to work the right muscles, but you're actually pushing instead of pulling. That's going to increase your risk of leakage. So let's do it again. I want you to focus, pull in and up and you work with her until she gets it right. You cannot put her on an exercise program until she is consistently contracting the right muscle group. You want to tell her to try to keep her abdominal muscles quiet but the most critical element is contracting the pelvic muscles. Once she gets it right, you can move ahead. So, then you're going to set up an individualized exercise program and you're going to base her program on her current function. For example, if I have extremely weak pelvic floor muscles and you tell me to contract as hard as I can and hold for 10 seconds and do 20 reps, I'm going to be overwhelmed. I'm not going to be able to do that. So, you want to start where I am. Long term, your goal 10 to 20 reps about three times a day. You want to hold each each contraction for as long as possible and you want to allow at least 10 seconds of rest in between. But let's say that at baseline my pelvic muscle contractility is around a one to two. So it's a pretty weak contraction and I can just hold it for a couple of seconds. Then what you're going to do is you're going to say, I want you to do 10 repetitions three times a day. We're going to start on the low end. Your initial goal is to hold each contraction for four seconds. Now you're not always going to be able to do that. That's your goal. So you're going to contract as hard as you can. You're going to hold as long as you can. You're going to watch that second hand. You're going to do your best to hold for four seconds. And then you're going to relax for 10 seconds and then you're going to try again. I don't want you to get discouraged remember these are muscles in training and it's going to take a little while they're not going to respond immediately. We always want to make sure that we're exercising both the slow twitch and the fast twitch fibers so there's a couple of different ways to do it. To exercise fast twitch fibers, one way to do it would be to say, okay, I want you to squeeze as hard as you can and immediately relax. Wait 10 seconds, squeeze as hard as you can, immediately relax. So a quick flick looks like this. To exercise slow twitch fibers, you would say now in this group of exercises, we're not going to focus on squeezing as hard as you can. We're going to focus much more on holding it. So I want you to gradually contract. I want you to hold, 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 hold. A lot of people combine fast twitch, slow twitch exercises. They tell the patient, I want you to contract as hard as you can and hold as long as you can. And what you realize is to contract as hard as you can, you engage the fast twitch. To hold as long as you can, you engage the slow twitch. We don't have any data that says one approach is better than another. So you can work with the patient to see what feels best to them. If I'm pretty good at fast twitch, but pretty, pretty bad at holding, maybe you want to separate it out. So I get the positive feedback from being able to do my fast twitch. And that helps motivate me to do my slow twitch. Other patients it doesn't matter. So you just got to work with the patient, come up with a program that works for them. Now look at that third bullet point. Teach the knack. What is that? I don't know why they named it the knack, but the knack refers to voluntary contraction of the pelvic floor muscles before you do something that might cause leakage. So squeeze before you sneeze, contract before you cough. Tighten before you lift. Or like uh, one patient was telling me that he had learned from his girlfriend. They both liked to golf. She had stress incontinence, and now he had had a radical prostatectomy, and he was having issues with post-prostatectomy incontinence. And he says, my girlfriend taught me to tighten before I swing. And I'm like, well, good for her. She taught you the knack. So you want people to start using their muscles in everyday life to prevent leakage. And patience, patience, patience. If you start doing sit-ups, you can't initially do 100. If you start doing push-ups, probably getting off the floor one time is quite an accomplishment. Same thing with pelvic floor. Now, what about biofeedback? What's the advantage of biofeedback? The advantage is the patient has either a vaginal probe um, patch electrodes or an anal probe and it's connected to a computer screen. So when they contract the right group of muscles they can literally see on the computer screen that they're contracting the right set of muscles. They can see exactly how long they're holding it and if they start to lose the contraction they see it tapering down and that reminds them tighten up. Some people biofeedback makes a huge difference other people do equally well with just verbal coaching. If you have access to biofeedback, it's a wonderful tool to use with selected patients. You should know that there are two different approaches to biofeedback. One utilizes a pressure sensitive probe and one uses sphincter EMG. So the probes look very much the same but one has a sleeve that responds to pressure and one literally has some little electrodes that pick up the electrical signals. If you do use biofeedback, there are several different ways to use it. A lot of clinicians use it as one-time therapy and they use it primarily to teach the patient that's the right muscle group. You see on screen what you just did? That's the muscle group you should be exercising. Others use it every time the patient comes back to clinic and some send patients home with a home therapy unit. So again, whatever you have access to that's beneficial for that patient. Now in our clinic, it was interesting, we found that our males with post prostatectomy incontinence really liked doing their exercises with biofeedback. They really liked being able to see when they were contracting, see how long they could hold it. Women tended to go back and forth. They're like, oh, it's a pain to hook up the home therapy unit. I'd rather just do them wherever I am sitting in traffic or whatever. Work with your patient. There's another type of biofeedback. It's not official biofeedback, but it is sensory biofeedback. This can be provided with your exercise weights, also known as vaginal cones. That's what you see at the bottom of the slide or with Benoit balls, where you literally use your muscles to retain the weight or the ball within the vaginal vault. And it works a couple of ways. First of all, the weight of the ball or the cone against the pelvic floor causes reflex increase and in resistance, but also it's sensory. So if the weight starts to slide out of position, you can sense that. It reminds you, tighten up, hold this in. So Your goal is you start with the heaviest weight that you can retain while walking around and then you work up from there. So they're not widely used, but women who have used them frequently say yes, they were helpful. Now, a lot of women will tell you, you know, I'm just never sure that I'm exercising the right muscles. It's just frustrating to me because I know I'm trying, but I just wonder, am I getting it right? Um, And it's hard to keep myself motivated because I'm not even sure I'm doing it right. So are there any alternatives? Well, yes, there are. If you have young women who are going to the gym, you can encourage them to use the Thigh Master. Because physical, ther- physical therapists have done studies that have shown if you exercise the muscles that insert into the pelvic floor, you're also exercising the pelvic floor muscles. So, if you go to the gym and you use the Thigh Master, then not only are you going to have great legs, hopefully, you're also going to have much drier underwear because you're contracting the muscles that insert into the pelvic floor. What else can you do? You can have women practice standing plies. It's the ballet move so that they have their heels together, their toes um, externally rotated, and they're in a partial squat and tell them contract your pelvic floor while you're doing this. You can also tell people to get an exercise ball and an exercise band and to practice Abducting and adducting against resistance. It's exercising the same muscles that you exercise when you use the thigh master, And there have been multiple reports of improved continence. Women have also impro- um, reported improved continence going to Pilates. So anything that exercises the pelvic floor can be beneficial. What else can you do? Well, a lot of times we'll encourage women who have stress incontinence, men who have post-prostatectomy incontinence, to void on schedule. And the goal there is simply to prevent bladder over because if the bladder is very full and I cough, I'm much more likely to leak than if I have limited urine in the bladder. So it's not a primary strategy. It's just a secondary management strategy. What about medications? There's not a lot out there for stress incontinence. The primary pharmacologic agent is estrogen for the patient who has atrophic urethritis and vaginitis. You've heard this before, but we'll say it one more time. What does topical estrogen do? Well, it restores mucus production and pliability to the urethral mucosa, so it improves urethral coaptation. Makes the urethral walls sticky again so that they cling to each other that increases urethral resistance. It reduces urethral and bladder irritation, so that reduces frequency and urgency. And in the long-term care setting, they have been able to prove that topical estrogen reduces the incidence of urinary tract infections by improving the health of the urethral tissue and the bladder tissue. We've already talked about the fact that topical estrogen is preferred over systemic both work for the pelvic floor. The problem is systemic therapy is also associated with a pretty significant incidence of adverse effects. Whereas with topical estrogen you get minimal adverse effects because you get minimal systemic absorption. We have vaginal tablets. We have vaginal creams. So if a woman hates the vaginal creams because they say they're too messy, you can suggest Vagifem, that's the intravaginal tablet. Typically the loading dose is use it nightly for somewhere between two and three weeks until you have resolution of some of the symptoms. Then you can drop back to twice a week or you could cross the patient over to that sustained release ring, the S ring that's inserted by a professional every three months. Are there other medications out there? Yes, but they're off-label. So you've got your SNSRIs and your sympathomimetic drugs. They both tighten the proximal urethra. They activate the alpha adrenergic receptors at the base of the bladder and in the proximal urethra to contract the muscles and increase urethral pressure. The Problem is they are not approved for management of incontinence. And there's some good reasons for that. So let's talk about that. Why are they not FDA approved for management of stress incontinence if we know they can help? Let's look first at pseudoephedrine, Sudafed. So you know that common side effects of pseudoephedrine are tachycardia and elevated blood pressure. That's not a good choice, especially when you consider that stress continence is much more likely to occur during periods of increased activity, like when women are jogging or when they're at the gym. So I don't really want to encourage someone to take a medication that's going to increase heart rate and increase blood pressure when they're about to participate in activities that increase heart rate and increase blood pressure. So Sudafed very, very, very rarely used. What about duloxetine? Well, duloxetine is used primarily as an antidepressant. It affects the neurotransmitters that are altered in depression and that can be altered in stress incontinence. So if the patient has both clinical depression and stress incontinence, duloxetine might be the drug of choice. However, you have to monitor that patient for side effects, and we don't use Diloxetine just for stress incontinence because of those side effects. Nausea, dizziness, fatigue, bowel dysfunction, so pretty significant. Okay, so, so far the main things available to our patients are pelvic muscle exercise programs for people who have pelvic floor weakness, estrogen for women who have atrophic urethritis. What else? Well, there are some urethral compression devices, pessaries for women and clamps for men. Not widely used, but helpful and effective for selected patients. So what are pessaries? Well, there you have a picture of all the pessaries in the world. They're basically intravaginal devices that are placed into the vagina to provide support for the pelvic organs. And they're used primarily to prevent or manage pelvic organ prolapse. So if you're having problems with uterine prolapse and you put a cube pessary into the vagina, it holds the uterus in place because it's got no place to go. Why would we be using a pessary for management of stress incontinence? Well, remember that the anterior vaginal wall is continuous with the posterior urethral wall. So if I put a device into the vagina, I'm actually providing support for the urethra and for the bladder neck. So a properly sized and placed pessary can provide support that helps to keep the bladder neck and the urethra in position. And it also causes just slight urethral compression that increases urethral resistance. Now, most of us don't fit pessaries. There's a selected group of urogynecologists and women's health nurse practitioners and selected continent specialists who size and fit pessaries. So if you end up in a setting where you think this would be beneficial for a lot of your patients, you probably wanna spend time with your uh, your urogynecologist or a women's health nurse practitioner to learn the ins and outs of selection, sizing, and placement. Now, after you put a pessary in, you wanna make sure that you're not getting excessive urethral compression. So after a pessary is placed, you're gonna stand the woman up. We always start with placement when she's in a semi-reclining position. So we've guesstimated the size of the pessary. We've placed the pessary. And before we even get her off the table, we're gonna ask, how does that feel? Is that uncomfortable? She should not feel it. So let's say she's like, no, it doesn't feel uncomfortable. I might go in and have her cough to make sure the pastry doesn't move out of position. So I can do a quick digital check, call for me. Okay, it stayed in position. Now I want you to stand up. Does it feel uncomfortable when you're standing up? No. Okay, I want you to walk over here to the uroflow. I want you to avoid. I wanna make sure that there's no obstruction to urine flow. So that's a critical thing to do after pest replacement. Most of the time we try to make sure that tissues are well estrogenized before we place a pessary because it is a mechanical device and it's going to be putting some pressure against the vaginal mucosa. So we want to make sure that the vaginal mucosa is healthy and we also want to do everything we can to support urethral coaptation. Now most pessaries are routinely removed, cleaned and reinserted by the patient. Occasionally you'll have a patient who would benefit from a pessary but she really doesn't have the dexterity to remove the pessary, wash it and put it back in. In that case you could selectively use a ring type pessary because a ring pessary does allow for drainage of vaginal secretions. A woman who's using a ring pessary can be assessed Every two to three months by a healthcare provider, the pastry can be removed, cleaned, and replaced at that time. What about penile clamps? Now, doesn't that sound like two words that shouldn't be used together? And when you look at that, doesn't it look like some kind of medieval device? And so you would think that if you came at a man with that, that he would be like, get out of here and take that with you but I can tell you I've talked to a number of men who are using penile clamps and they told me it had made all the difference in the world to their quality of life. So the goal is to use the clamp to increase urethral resistance and to prevent leakage. Now, obviously you would use this only for an individual who had intact sensation, who had post-prostate post-prostatectomy stress incontinence, but no other issues. You would not use this on a patient who had bladder overactivity, whose bladder was contracting unpredictably. No, this is intended only to prevent leakage with activity. So what you're gonna do is you're literally going to place the penile shaft between those foam layers and you're gonna close the clamp You're gonna minimize the amount of closure. You're gonna use the lowest level that prevents leakage. And you're going to assure that this patient is motivated to remove the clamp and void at least every three hours and to respond to any level of discomfort. So they look awful, they do work for selected patients. So it's all about selecting your patient. What else is out there? Well, you do not have to remember this. I'll mention it very briefly. I don't know how much longer these will be on the market. Maybe they'll make a comeback. Maybe they'll go away. There are some urethral inserts available for PRN use in women. So what they are is they're very narrow, very small caliber urethral catheters. And the catheter is actually surrounded by a sleeve that contains mineral oil. It has an applicator, so the applicator allows you to stretch out the catheter, insert it without trauma through the urethra into the bladder. And once you remove the applicator, all the mineral oil in that little sheath is displaced into a little balloon that sits at the bladder neck. And that occludes the urethral opening and provides temporary protection against leakage. It's one-time use, you have to take it out to void. So most women use this as adjunct therapy. They might be doing their pelvic muscle exercises, but it's like, but I have a tennis match next week. What can I do next week? Well, let's see if this insert works for you. So you should just be aware that that device is on the market is not widely used. The last thing we're going to talk about in management of stress incontinence is surgery. And there's two different types of surgical procedures. The first is the most commonly used. And these are surgical procedures that are designed to stabilize the urethra, hold the bladder neck and the urethra in position, prevent that downward movement, prevent that urethral hypermobility. Because if you hold the sphincter in position, it's going to function better. It's going to give you better squeeze than if it's out of position. Now for a long time you heard about women having bladder tacks. And the bladder tack procedure was officially known as a retropubic suspension. And what they did, they went in through an open incision. They placed sutures around the urethra, around the proximal urethra and then secured it either to the side walls of the pelvis or to the symphysis pubis to essentially tack the bladder and the bladder neck in position, hold the urethra and the sphincter in position. And pretty much they got good outcomes as long as the only issue was pelvic floor weakness and urethral hypermobility, as long as the sphincter muscle was normally innervated and had normal contractility but it was an open surgical procedure. People had to be in the hospital. There were issues post-op with retention. So it's rarely used today. Today, people are much more likely to have a minimally invasive, mid-urethral, tension-free sling. That's a lot of words. So they typically abbreviate it by the specific procedure. Transvaginal tape, TVT, transobturator tape, um, pubos, uh, vesicle sling, etc. What do all of these procedures involve? They're gonna take a strip of synthetic mesh or fascia. They're gonna place it behind the urethra at midpoint. So they can go transvaginally, they can go through the obturator canal, but they're gonna place this strip right behind the urethra at midpoint. They do not connect the sides, the ends of this little strip, this little sling. They do not attach them to the pelvic sidewalls. They don't attach them to the symphysis. So you don't have any risk of obstructive symptoms because you're not actively compressing the urethra. So you're not pulling against it. You're just placing this strip behind the urethra. So how does it help? Well, the thinking is that collagen is deposited along the length of this strip, and that collagen deposit holds the urethra in position, stabilizes the urethra. So then, even if there's downward pressure, this collagen holds that urethra right there, right where you want it, and keeps it from dropping out of position, allows the sphincter to function normally. Now, worldwide this is the most commonly used procedure for stress incontinence with excellent results worldwide. However, you have to be aware, and I know a lot of you are aware, that mesh has also been used to correct pelvic organ prolapse, and a lot of women have had adverse reactions to the mesh used in pelvic organ prolapse correction procedures. So there's a lot of attention to these mid-urethral slings when mesh is involved and patients are being monitored very closely. So there might be a change in what we use, probably the procedure will continue to be used, but we might see fascia used more often than mesh. We might see a different type of mesh used in the future. The second type of surgical procedure is for patients whose sphincter is denervated or damaged. The sphincter does not work. And in this case, you can't just stabilize the urethra, you have to compress it. So there's three different procedures that are sometimes used to provide increased urethral resistance by compressing or bulking the sphincter. These procedures are indicated only for individuals with severe stress incontinence due to denervation or sphincter muscle damage. So the first is to use a compressive sling. It's a different sling. So now you take a strip of fascia, rectus muscle, or some kind of synthetic material. You loop it behind the sphincter, typically very close to the bladder neck but then you attach the ends of the sling to the pelvic side walls or you pull them forward and attach them to the symphysis pubis. So now you are actively compressing the urethra. Your goal is create enough compressive force to bring the urethral walls together and keep them closed, but not enough force to obstruct emptying. It's literally like walking a tightrope. I was at one conference and the surgeon presenting said, you should either do slings every single week or you shouldn't do them at all. Because his point was, it's not an objective measure. Many times it's more subjective to know when you have enough tension, but not too much. What are the potential problems? What did we just say? Obstructed voiding and also potentially complications related to the mesh. It's like, okay, I don't know if I want that sling. What else is out there? Well, there's an artificial urinary sphincter. A great idea, works really well for a lot of people. These procedures are very complex, so they're done only in selected centers. But the idea is you're gonna take a soft inflatable cuff, and you're gonna place it around the bladder neck, around the proximal urethra. So in this slide you can see that white cuff implanted right at the base of the bladder and around the urethra. Then you're going to place the reservoir in the abdominal cavity and you're going to have a control pump in the scrotum if it's a male and the labia if it's female. So this is female you can see the control pump in the labia and you can see the reservoir in the abdominal cavity. Now as long as the fluid is in the cuff and the cuff is inflated, the urethra is closed and continence is maintained. Then when the patient needs to void, what they do is they activate the pump in the labia for women and the scrotum for men. As they activate the pump, they're transferring fluid out of the cuff into the reservoir. That opens the urethra, permits voiding and then it passively refills over two minutes. So it's a really great idea. It's pretty complex and of course there's a lot of complications related to the fact that you've got three mechanical foreign bodies. So you can get infectious complications, you can get rejection of the foreign body and an inflammatory response and occasionally you get malfunction of the pump but it can work really well. The simplest of the procedures for increasing urethral resistance is to do what they call periurethral bulking. And the pro to this, the advantage to this, is its simplicity, but the disadvantage is that so far we don't have great results. So it's a super idea, you take carbon beads, you take copolymers or a polyacrylamide hydrogel, and in an outpatient procedure, you inject that into the urethral walls. And of course, what does that do? It thickens the urethral walls and reduces the size of the lumen. Now you have increased urethral resistance. Sounds perfect. Easy to do. If you need more than one injection, you can do more than one injection. The problem is we don't really know which patients are good candidates for this procedure. We started out thinking, oh, it would be great for men with post prostatectomy incontinence, but it didn't really work well for them because there's a lot, there's frequently scar tissue and it just didn't give good results. Right now, it's sometimes used for temporary improvement in women with severe stress incontinence. In reality, we have, we've still got a lot of work to do to determine when and how to use this. So let's summarize. We know what stress urinary incontinence is. It's sphincter dysfunction. It's caused either by pelvic muscle weakness and urethral hypermobility in women, or by sphincter damage or denervation. Clinical presentation is pretty clear-cut. You've got leakage with activity, The severity is variable so if I have mild stress incontinence I'm going to leak small amounts when I cough really hard, when I jog, when I'm doing aerobics. If I have severe stress incontinence I might leak when I stand up and it might be a pretty good volume. What can we do about stress incontinence? A lot. For people with weak pelvic floor muscles, pelvic muscle strengthening and re-education programs are very beneficial but we have to make sure that the patient is, cur- is contracting the right muscle groups. So education is essential. Topical estrogen is almost always a benefit for the female with atrophic urethritis and vaginitis. Compression devices might be helpful for selected patients. Maybe a clamp for a male with post prostatectomy incontinence, possibly a pessary for a female with stress incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse. There are surgical options. The one that's most commonly used is the tension-free mid-urethral sling for correction of urethral hypermobility. Stabilizes the sphincter in place so that it can work normally. There are several options for increasing urethral resistance. There's the compressive sling, the artificial sphincter or bulking. And finally, these patients may benefit from absorptive products, which we discussed in a previous class. So that's it for stress incontinence. Next class, we'll be talking about overactive bladder and urge. Thank you.